Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of February 2023. We are rapidly gaining daylight, just a little more than three weeks away from spring equinox. And with sunny skies here in Sitka this past week, for at least part of the week, it was definitely noticeable how much more daylight we were getting. The sun isn't setting until nearly 5.30, so we had daylight well after that. The sunny weather was associated with a high-pressure system, which also happened to coincide with our new moon low tide series. And we saw tides that were up to two feet below predicted here in Sitka, which made at least one evening it got down to a negative 3.7, which there's a pretty good chance it'll be the lowest tide of the year. I had a chance to get out and explore on the beaches, which I enjoyed. It's a very different experience going out at night and having a headlamp or a flashlight and seeing what you can see among the rocks. It sort of, I find it focuses my attention a little better and I don't feel quite so overwhelmed by the amazing amount of diversity that we have here in our intertidal areas. I suspect also that there are some creatures that are a little more active at night and so you're more likely to find them out and about instead of tucked away and hidden as they might be during the daylight hours when we might go for low tides in the spring and the summer. While I was out in the evenings, I also enjoyed seeing the conjunction of the moon with Venus and Jupiter. Uh, It was a couple of nights here that it was clear and the moon the first night was below Venus and then there's Venus and then off to an angle a little bit there was Jupiter. The following night, the moon was closer to Jupiter, and I was able to get pictures of the crescent moon and Jupiter, and I was kind of excited that I was able to see the moons of Jupiter even, or at least some of them, in the picture as well. So that was a fun thing for me. hope you have had a chance to get out. Maybe you saw the northern lights that I slept through earlier in the week. Uh, But anything else as we are approaching springtime here, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I originally recorded and aired back in July of 2021. I spoke with Aliyah Lesnick, who is currently the lab director and an assistant professor at Queens College in New York City. And at the time she was here visiting with a group of geologists looking over at Kruzoff Island. We'll talk about that trip and some of her prior work looking at the glacial retreat in southeast Alaska. My name is Aliyah Lesnick. I am currently a postdoctoral research associate at the University of New Hampshire, and I will be moving to New York City in just a couple of weeks to start an assistant professor job down there at Queens College. And this is my first time in Sitka, actually. I've been to southeast Alaska doing research a number of times before, but I am a glacial geologist. So I am studying the retreats of glaciers and also recently some of the uh, volcanic eruptions here around Mount Edgecombe. And I guess we'll be getting to talk about that soon. Um, But yeah, it's been really great out here so far. And uh, yeah, looking forward to this conversation. All right, great. Well, I appreciate you taking some time out of your trip here. I know you're headed, headed out soon. I guess I, I spoke with your graduate advisor, uh, Jason Briner, and and a, a follow up graduate student. Maybe you overlap some, uh, Caleb. No, 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 we he came in right after oh, I left. Okay, so, yep. so he was the following one, and and I think continued some of that. So I got a little bit of a of a background on kind of some of that work. But if I understand it correctly, basically you're you're dating how old rocks are how long they've been exposed, essentially. And that gives you a sense of, well, if the glaciers came and peeled stuff off and then retreated, then then you get an exposure. If you can date that, 
that how long they've been exposed that tells you when the ice wasn't there anymore. Is that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we are essentially measuring how long those rock surfaces have been exposed to the atmosphere and more specifically cosmic radiation. So cosmic radiation are essentially these extremely high energy particles like protons that are zooming through the galaxy. Originally, they came from supernova. So they're coming from really far away at really, really high speeds. And they uh, come through space, down through Earth's atmosphere, and they essentially hit the elements in rocks at a really high speed. And those reactions knock uh, particles off of the elements, like neutrons, and turn them into something else. And so we can measure those very rare isotopes uh, or those very rare chemicals in the rocks to figure out how long those surfaces have been exposed, just like you said, which tells us in this case when the glacier retreated and left the area. So are they are they not present at all until they start getting bombarded? Or is this something where you have to say, well, I know the baseline is this and then there's this ratios and things? So there are some of these uh, isotopes, these cosmogenic isotopes, that we that's what we call them, um, that can be uh, present in some form. Uh, but the ones that we mostly use, uh, like beryllium-10, uh, that one is not present in rocks at all. The only way that we can have that in your rock is if those minerals are getting hit by those cosmic rays. Nice. Something that I don't really... I mean, I imagine it, it first depends on what you're studying, but like, how do you validate essentially a method like this. I don't know if you pioneered this method or not, but it's like... Oh, certainly not, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a method that's been used, and presumably there's some process to say, this is what we think it's saying, but then how do you how do you actually test that? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, because one of the uh, concepts that we, we need to know, or the, the factors we need to know, is the production rate of these isotopes, right? How quickly they're being produced in the rocks, which will tell us uh, that we can use to calculate the duration of exposure. And uh, we can calibrate these production rates by essentially using another dating method. So another way that we can use to figure out uh, how long that surface has been exposed. One of the traditional ways of doing that is using radiocarbon dating. Uh, So in the case of a glacial setting, you might have a rock that was uh, left behind by the glacier, one that we're interested in figuring out when that rock was there. And in a deposit that that glacier also left behind, we think at the same time, there might be something like a little twig that was uh, incorporated into that glacial sediment. And we can date that twig. And when that tree that uh, dropped that twig in the sediment died using radiocarbon. And so if you can be confident that uh, those that sediment and that uh, glacial boulder, for example, were dropped at the same time, then you can use the date that you get from the twig as sort of a, uh, a way to calibrate and uh, use to figure out how much uh, beryllium-10 you might expect in your rock, for example. Mm. So I've got so many questions. The, um, <laughs> the, so does the, does the rate of accumulation of the beryllium-10 change over time, or is that something that's uh, – and in which case then you'd need – basically to make a catalog, presumably, of, of Ab- calibrations. Yes, and this is, uh, yes, absolutely. It does change through time, and it's also not constant everywhere on Earth. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, so there are a lot of steps that go into figuring out uh, the production rate. And uh, the beryllium-10 uh, production rate might change through time, for example, because the strength of Earth's magnetic field might be changing. So earlier I mentioned those cosmic rays are coming in at pretty high speeds, And uh, 
the amount that actually might reach uh, the Earth's surface and even in the the upper part of Earth's atmosphere will be affected by the strength of the magnetic field. You can imagine when Earth's magnetic field is uh, stronger, they might get deflected a little bit more. So fewer of those cosmic rays might make it through. Um, There are also... Uh, it changes with latitude also due to the strength of the magnetic field and sort of the orientation of Earth's magnetic field lines. Uh, that has an impact on how many of those cosmic rays can make it through. Uh, there are also factors that might have to do uh, with the density of Earth's atmosphere through time. So, And also the elevation of the Earth's surface. If that's moving up and down through time, uh, that can affect how many of those uh, cosmic rays will make it down to Earth's surface to be able to knock things, uh, knock particles off of the elements and rocks. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of that seems like there's, there's, you know, sort of pure physics considerations about this. But I imagine that in practice, you're not trying to model all of that, but it's, it's really more of an empirical, like, here, here's, here's how we calibrate for this area. Right. right. And so, over this time frame. Yes. So there are actually some empirical measurements, too. I forgot to, to mention that when I talked about just the calibration. Um, there have been some studies where people will, you know, take a piece of rock or of quartz, which is what we often use for beryllium-10. They'll take it up to the top of a mountain, sit it out there for 10 years, uh, and then come back and see how much of these isotopes are mm. in the rocks. That, uh, it's a great way to do it. Obviously, it takes a really long time, uh, especially for uh, some of these isotopes, which aren't produced very often. They might only be four atoms being produced a year mm. in a grain of a mineral. And so it's uh, quite, can be quite, you have to put it out there for a long time to get enough to measure, essentially. And so the way that we often do it is how I was describing before, um, measuring the age of something using a different technique and then measuring how much of these isotopes you have and then using those pieces of information to back out how many, what the production rate is. Yeah. Um, but people do this all over the world and it's, it's a really uh, an active area of research trying to gather these sites where we have essentially two or more ways of dating these surfaces. And there are people who do have these really uh, complex physics models to, you know, they take into account Earth's magnetic field and changes in Earth's atmosphere and how that might have changed through time. And uh, we, the uh, geologists who are actually using this method, that's all sort of hidden behind the computer in the programs that we use. Uh, but it's all all definitely being considered. Yeah. So, I mean, ideally, I guess you're you're looking for scenarios where you have multiple lines of evidence giving you ages. Um, and But in cases where you only have exposure dating as an option, then you, you, you develop your confidence in that by by working in these other locations. It, you know, not just yourself, I mean, presumably, but, but people all over. Um, and, and kind of building your, building your confidence, essentially, in, in that, okay, this is the only line of evidence that is possible right here. Mm-hmm. And then I suppose in your Southeast Alaska work, you're looking at multiple, so, so it, you're also wanting it to tell a coherent story, essentially, of like, if your age is out here where the ice wouldn't have persisted as long because it's far out from the source, are showing up as younger than the ones inside, then you're like, well, okay, we got to, something's going on here. And yeah. They're tricky things, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, as you mentioned, it is great to have two sets of evidence that are telling you the same thing, right? Then you can be a lot more confident that the results that you're getting are, you know, actually telling you what really happened around here when, especially when they don't agree, it can get a little bit 
uh, a little bit confusing to try to work through that. Um, but yeah, out here, uh, we've been doing these exposure dating techniques for uh, not that long, actually. My first time out here was back in 2015. So we've only been working out here for about uh, six years now. And uh, yeah, being able to bring those techniques to bear on some of these problems about the retreat of the Cordillera and Ice Sheet, which was the one that uh, covered most of Southeast Alaska during the last ice age. It's been really exciting, and especially seeing how that matches up with a lot of the work that's been done here already. Most of that was working uh, on sediments in the ocean, so pulled up from marine sediment cores. Uh, but we've been able to to learn a lot more about the behavior of the ice sheet and the glaciers and uh, how quickly it retreated uh, by doing some of these exposure dating techniques. Yeah, I had not realized this, but but just heard this morning, actually, as we're recording this, uh, your PhD advisor, uh, Dr. Jason Briner, uh, did a little geology walk thing and was speaking to uh, a woman, a local woman who helped work with the On Your Knees cave thing on Prince of Wales. Oh, really? And so she was part of that part of that project and and he mentioned that and, and this isn't something i heard before but he mentioned that the fossil record there which can be radiocarbon dated um and then there's this there's all these fossils and then there's this gap and then there's all these fossils again and so the gap corresponds to when the cave was closed by ice mm-hmm. which your work i think it was your work probably uh it, it aligns with that essentially when when your work was showing when the ice would have been out there mm-hmm. um there was this nice corresponding gap so i guess that's one of those things where you're like yeah, oh, here's here's corroborating, you know, independent lines of evidence that are pointing in the same direction. Yeah, exactly. And that uh, the On Your Knees cave, it's a really, really interesting site that people had uh, been working on for, I, say, I think, since maybe the mid 90s. So uh, and those fossils have been cataloged and detailed. And that was something that the original uh, researchers on the, researchers on the cave, like uh, Tim Heaton, for example, had had noticed that that there was this gap but without having any other data they were like okay well maybe perhaps the animals just hadn't been using the cave for 2000 years it wasn't really clear if that gap was truly because a glacier had advanced over it and shut the cave entrance or if it just happened to not have any fossils that they found right and so when as you said when you bring in multiple uh, approaches you can really learn a lot more and I was really excited to be able to work on that uh, data from that cave because I think it's just so cool. That there's these fossils that go back at least 45,000 years, probably even longer, and they're all just piled up in the sediments of the cave. Uh, and you can also, uh, working, with those, um, working with those fossils, you can start to piece together what uh, the environment was like, too. For example, earlier in the record, we... Uh, start to have certain animals that are found in the cave, like harbor seals. But then as you get closer to the Ice Age, we stop seeing harbor seals and we start seeing ringed, or excuse me, uh, oh my gosh, what are they called? Um, the northern seals? Yeah, yeah the, I think the ringed Arctic seals. Yeah. ringed seals, right. Yeah, 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 so we go, we start to see ringed seals. And so that's telling you that the climate's getting colder. Perhaps sea ice is extending a little bit farther south than it did. Uh, And so you're starting to get those animals that live in a much colder environment. And we see those changes in the climate 
in the fossils that are preserved in the caves, which are, I guess maybe they're not technically fossils. I know sub-fossils, or sub-fossils like that, yeah. partial fossils, uh, bones, either way. Yeah, I remember having a conversation uh, once with uh, Pat Druckenmiller, who's the curator of the paleontology at the Museum of the North, and I was like, oh, so what, what goes in the paleontological collection and what goes in the mammalogy collection and what goes in the anthropological collection, you know? Mm. And, and kind of looking at that, because there's these gray zones, you know, if you find whale bones that were associated with human settlement, for example, is that anthropology or is that mammalogy or is that are they old enough that they end up in paleontology? And he says, well, it's a gray zone. They kind of yeah. they, they work it out as long as they're all cataloged and somebody can access them, I guess. But I don't I don't know when something technically becomes a fossil or not. So, yeah, it, it is. It is something I hadn't <clears throat> excuse me. I hadn't thought about until that conversation with him. And it was like, oh, yeah, I guess. It is it is vague, but uh, right. you know uh, all those things. So the uh, the work that you did then on southern southeast Alaska. So were you like mapping over time, essentially the extent of? I, I guess you can't really tell when the glacier is coming. You're, you're you're describing when it's leaving primarily. Yeah. So actually, uh, from that on your knees cave site, we do. We're interpreting that that gap in the fossils as, or (laughs) fossils, bones, the gap in animal bones preserved in the cave. We're interpreting that as the ice advancing over the site. So this is actually kind of a rare case where we do have, we think, a date on the advance of the ice sheet over this region, which was about 20,000 years ago. Uh, And then with the exposure dating that we're doing on the rocks, we think that ice is pulling back from the islands that are currently exposed, like Sumez Island and Dahl Island around, and Warren Island around 17,000 years ago. Hmm. And are you, I mean, I mean, my understanding is you didn't do any kind of late, lake sediment coring, but is that something that, that others are doing that, that then gets correlated as well with, uh, you know, the different sorts of sediment that show up depending on where the ice is and what it's doing? Yeah, exactly. So uh, in the lake basins or in... These kinds of settings where you have uh, a glacier advancing over the rocks, essentially it's kind of acting like a bulldozer. And so it's going to be scraping off any sediments that are over the the hard bedrock beneath. And uh, you're not going to get anything that's accumulating in the lake basins because it's all covered by ice. And so the idea is that when that glacier retreats and exposes those depressions that eventually fill with water... uh, the sediments that will accumulate in the bottom of the lake are going to be different depending on where the ice is. And the essentially the bottom part of that sediment is going to be telling you when the ice was there versus when it's not. Uh, and you can oftentimes identify that transition visually. When the glacier is really close, you might be getting this very dense, gray, fine uh, material called silt. Uh, but then once that glacier retreats far away enough you're going to start accumulating uh, organic mud. So it's going to be this very brown, uh, not dense, squishy, filled with all kinds of plant materials. So it's very, very different. And we can date when that transition is, which tells us, uh, gives us another line of evidence of when the glacier retreated from that area. And I haven't uh, worked on that kind of data here, uh, but there are people who are working with my former advisor, Dr. Briner, on those questions of, uh, you know, sort of correlating those lake sediments with some of the chronology or the dates that we have from the beryllium and also using the sediments for uh, climate reconstructions. Mm. So over, overall, kind of the, the broader project is, is trying to reconstruct based on the evidence that, that remains because it's 
you know, by human standards, it's been a long time. Yeah. Geological standards, not much, not much time has passed at all. But, <laughs> but the changes and stuff that overwrite the old things and looking for the the little snippets that that persist and and those sorts of, and by override, I mean they just like they erase it by putting new stuff down. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing doing the best to reconstruct. And how far back are are you trying to reconstruct? Just kind of the the last glacial maximum, or or even some beyond that. It would be great if we could get earlier than that. Um, it is a little bit difficult in settings like this to um, to reconstruct what happened before the glacier advanced over an area because, like I said, the glacier is kind of a big bulldozer and it just scrapes everything away. So you kind of get a fresh start uh, once the glacier retreats. But um, it would be there are some techniques that you can use to uh, figure out what happened before and you might have be really lucky and find some spot where the glacier didn't scrape everything off and left a little bit of uh, material behind. You can also try to go to places like in the ocean, for example, where the glacier never quite made it to. And so you might still have the uh, sequence of sediments, for example, that you can use to to kind of piece that together. But um, yeah, the glaciers are very... uh, they're really uh, giving us a fresh start here. Yeah. So it's a relatively young landscape overall, though still questions remain about possible refugia and that sort of thing. I mm-hmm. guess the other complicating factor uh, is the, the sea level, because sea, sea level erases different sorts of things. I guess it doesn't really erase the bedrock, although though it does impact your ability to do the dating of exposures, I suppose, by attenuating the, the cosmic rays. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, and the sea level is obviously a very uh, a big story around here too. It's not just the glaciers. There's sea level change. Uh, there's you know volcanic eruptions and yeah, very dynamic environment here. Even over the last you know twenty thousand years. Yeah. So in the sea level, I suppose it it, it I mean, I just think of what the sea does here and and how much the waves wash and pound and and do stuff. And I guess in some quiet bays, maybe the um, sediments would could could be submerged by the ocean and not not be disturbed but uh those are probably the exceptions rather than the rules so you're you're not erasing the bedrock but you might be erasing the the sediment sediment layer uh story that that you might otherwise have although it's not always easy to get at it i suppose beneath the waves yeah (laughs) Uh, that might be a challenge but uh, as i understand it you also have spent some time working with jim bachel uh, who I know he's come to Sitka and given some talks on kind of the marine shell bed uh, sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, I'd be curious to hear what your involvement with that has been and, and kind of uh, the things that you've you've learned learned from that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Jim, he's the, uh, the geologist for the Tongass National Forest. And so he's been here for decades doing a lot of work on pretty much every aspect of the geology here. He's definitely a jack of all trades for uh, Southeast Alaskan geology. And uh, as we were working here on some of the ice sheet history uh, projects, we he uh, mentioned that he had this essentially a mountain of data that he was really trying to wrap his head around and uh, get out there in the world so people could uh, take a look at it. And 
so you said he has been here talking a little yeah, bit about the shell he's beds. Given some public talks. It's been a couple of years, well, for COVID reasons, but uh, yeah. I can't remember exactly what year it was that he was last here. But uh, you know, it's still very much a, a work in 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 progress. You know, still mm-hmm. discovering new sites and doing that. But he found a lot of sites by the time he came here and spoke. Yeah. So. Um, Essentially, what he's been doing is trying to find places uh, on land and in some cases, uh, places a little bit below uh, modern sea modern sea level. But really, this is uh, sites that are currently above uh, modern sea level where you can actually find marine sediments. And uh, that's not something that you would necessarily expect if it's somewhere where the ocean currently is. And so you can find marine sediments and you can also find shells, things like clams and barnacles and other marine organisms that are preserved in these sediments that are above the modern ocean. And so what these tell you is that sea level has changed. And, you know, that's something that we're currently thinking about in terms of global climate change. Uh, How do sea levels change? How quickly do they change? and, And why do they change? And so... He's been working on compiling all of that data, mapping where those sediments are and getting some dates on the shells, radiocarbon dates that tell us when those shells or when those marine organisms died. And we can then use that to figure out when the sea level was at that particular point, whether that's, you know, one meter or, you know, three feet above modern sea level. Or in some cases, we have sites that are almost 600 feet above modern sea level. So, uh, Jim has been uh, working on that along with his colleagues at the Forest Service uh, for decades now. And um, I was sort of uh, brought in to help interpret some of the data, especially because of the work that we had been doing with the retreat of the ice sheet and just the general uh, geologic, recent geologic history of the region. And the paper has been accepted and will be coming out hopefully pretty soon. Uh, in an open access journal, so people will be able to to take a look at it. Nice. My recollection is inside Southeast Alaska, that where the glaciers were actually at, that the crust there was depressed mostly, and so sea level has risen, or, or the land level has risen substantially. Of course, sea level rose at the same time, but the land rose more. Yes. And then out here on the outer coast, they had this thing called the bulge, where the the, the glaciers weighed things down, and the and the crust pushed up out in front of it a bit. And so that actually collapsed. And so relatively speaking, it's even deeper uh, than you would expect based on just how much sea level has changed. Mm-hmm. And that somewhere around Sitka, Baranoff Island, there's the, 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 the balance point essentially between the bulge and the, and the, and, yeah. and the not bulge. <laughs> um, and I, so this is something that, you know, I'd heard him talk about this before. And, and I'd heard about a place uh, in the Sitka area, DeGroff Bay, where they'd found, you know, he was always saying, Marine sh- marine clam beds in growth position uh, at a tide level that was, and that's the that's the tricky thing here is that it's not really out of the intertidal range here in Sitka yet. So, you know, when we walk by shells, we're just like, oh well, that's it's the beach. What do you expect? Mm-hmm. And and shells wash up on the beach all the time. But the difference is these are still embedded in the mud, and they're like they're still there, like clams mm-hmm. are growing. And so he showed us uh, these past couple of days. Um, you know, place that I've walked over many times and there's all these clams in the creek. And, you know, I, I at some level I saw them, but I never really, they, they, were, they weren't significant to me. I mean, I, like, I was like, okay, yeah, so there's clamshells in the creek. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's the beach. What do you expect? But it turns out those clamshells are like 
several thousand years old. Yeah, and, like eight thousand uh, years yeah, old. <laughs> the, the oldest ones there, and 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 so it was kind of really interesting to think about that. And and what he pointed out uh, was that those clams, the butter clams and whatnot, grow it kind of I think within a meter of the zero foot tide. Um, and those are now at the highest storm tide level. So that's, I don't know what how many feet that ends up being, 10, 15 feet or something mm-hmm. above uh, above where they would have been growing. And so that's one of, that's that's our local Sitka example. I think, you know, there are lots of them throughout Southeast. You'd know better than I would because uh, <laughs> you probably had to deal with all the data and try and, like, <laughs> put it into digestible forms. Yeah, yeah, we've got uh, data going all the way up uh, through Judo and kind of around the, uh, the Glacier Bay region down through Ketchikan. So we're covering uh, pretty much the entire uh, southeast Alaska region with this data set. And, yeah, it's it, it's really variable, too, where you find these shells and how old they are. Uh, up by Juneau is really where we have uh, shells that tell us that relative sea level has changed almost uh, 600 feet, if I'm doing the conversion from meters right. to feet yeah. correctly. But uh, yeah, nearly 600 feet of change because that area underneath Juneau was just so pressed down by the glaciers. Uh, when those glaciers left, it just popped right back up. Uh, a really crazy uh, amount, uh, even in you know just the last 15,000 years or so. So does that incorporate the sea level change at the same time? Or, or is the sea level change then on top of that? So those were actually even lower... Yeah, exactly. So it's actually the amount of uh, rebound. So that's the amount that the crust has popped back up. It's more than that uh, 600 feet. It's uh, I can't quite remember. I think maybe it was an additional 80 feet or something like that. So it ends up, or maybe even more. I can't quite remember the exact number. But yeah, so there's even more crustal movement than just the sea level, the relative sea level might tell you. Yeah. Yeah. It's I always find it fascinating, these... These things that, that, I mean, in human scale, hundreds of feet is a lot, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to think about something that I perceive. And then, and whenever I speak uh, or think about kind of geological sorts of things and the time scales, the scales of things are sort of the earth is so huge relative to sort of my innate scale. Um, it's, it's weird to think about like the crust, the earth, which seems... I mean, obviously, I know that it's moving uh, at some level, uh, and and we have the tectonic things and volcanoes forming and that sort of thing. But, but so much of that feels. I mean, it's just slow. So over the course of my lifetime, it feels really pretty static. Mm-hmm. And so you you know we hear these stories, the things, the work that you're all doing, and and um, and how these things are changing, and thinking about man, the, the crust has moved that much. Uh, and this is something that I perceive as being like super solid, like mm-hmm. the earth. That's that's the solid solid business there. Uh, and yet it's all that. But then on the other hand, the earth is so massive that the percentage of that, like the actual amount that is depressing as a percent of what's there is like tiny, I guess, in the end. Yeah. So by earth standards, it's actually hardly even an indentation. Yeah, really. It's, it is kind of, uh, yeah, something that uh, as a geologist, you certainly have a, a very different uh, feel for things like time and and how much things are moving and looking on different time scales than the, the typical human lifespan and so it really puts things into into perspective yeah so is that something that it I mean I guess I'm not quite sure you've been obviously doing geology seriously for a while you're working in more recent geology not like the deep time sort of uh, mm-hmm. hundreds of millions and I suppose some people are even working billion year old geology kind of things um, like how how is that 
Do, do you have an awareness of how your sense of time and, and sort of your place in it has, has shifted as a result of kind of working in these much longer timescales and kind of, you know, the human mind is really remarkably adaptable and, and sort of the things that the information and the data and the things, the models that you, you feed it then, then tend to propagate back out again. And so you start to see things differently in, in, in light of those. Um, and having not done that kind of thing myself, I'm just kind of curious if that's something that you've noticed or if it just kind of organically happened and, and you can kind of look back and go, well, it used to be different maybe, but I don't quite remember anymore. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a really great question. Uh, I mean, I think I've, you know, I, in the university that I'm at now, I occasionally teach a class called Earth History that's basically a, a survey of all 4.6 billion years mm. of uh, what we know about has happened on earth and we actually even go back to the big bang so in over the course of the class we're talking about you know 13.7 billion years of history and as i'm teaching this class i'm still constantly just having my mind boggled by the scale of the times that we're talking about i mean it's it almost doesn't even make sense to to my mind like how long it is because you know in the in your day-to-day life here thinking oh yeah a year maybe kind of long, five years, definitely starting to feel a bit long. But then at work, you know, we're saying, oh, it retreated really quickly. You know, it took 3,000 years, and that's like the blink of an eye, geologically speaking. So I definitely do notice that contrast in in terms of of how I think about time. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's now I'm starting to freak out a yeah. little bit by the length of, <laughs> of Earth history. So <laughs> it's it's funny. One of the things that I do when I teach math sometimes is uh, just give a little quiz, uh, just for fun, and 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 it is entirely to sort of illuminate the ways in which uh, humans, most of us, we don't really like. One of the ways to describe is we tend to think logarithmically, and so we tend to shrink large numbers, relatively speaking, and emphasize small numbers, mm. relatively speaking. And so I'll ask a question of of my students and say, "All right, so to the to the nearest you know sensible time units, how long is a million seconds, a billion seconds, and a trillion seconds?" Mm-hmm. I don't expect them to know, um, and and if they thought about it, which I I don't encourage them to do, I just ask that and say just put your gut feeling down. What do you think? What do you think this is? A million seconds, a billion seconds, and a trillion seconds. Well, I mean, a million to a billion, that's really not that much difference. It's just three zeros, right? But that's three orders of magnitude as, mm-hmm. as you think about the math. But in our mind, it's like, oh, that's just three zeros. It's a thousand times more. And then, of course, a billion to a trillion is, is, is the same. And we deal with these kind of org- orders of magnitude mostly in the in the context of like financial stuff at these points, you know, state, local, state, and and federal sorts of budget. That's mm-hmm. where we'll see those sorts of numbers. And, you know, you're just getting in, just getting into the billions, you know, in terms <laughs> of ages of in geology. But 11, uh, uh, a million seconds is 11 days. So it's not, and, and often people's guesses are pretty close to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a billion seconds is 31 years. And mostly people are putting like a year or two, right? So yeah. if you think about well, it's a thousand times greater. That's eleven thousand days. Well, how long is eleven? Well, that's a lot of years. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. when you think about it that way, but you don't think about it as multiplying by a thousand. You just are like, oh, it's just a billion, so it's not that much more, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go to a trillion. Well, then you're at thirty-two thousand years. You go, you go from Whoa. like thirty-two-ish years to thirty-two thousand years, and and it's three orders of magnitude. I mean, the math checks out, but that's not how we feel it. And no. so you really kind of have to train yourself to 
to think about it in those terms. And I imagine that's part of what, you know, dealing with these long timescales, especially when you start to get into the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, even in the billion years, you've got to really kind of go, okay, what does that actually mean in terms of how much can happen in, in that time frame? Right, uh, exactly. You know, you think about... Yeah, all these these changes that we've been describing, you know, the the waxing and waning of ice sheets that covered up to 30 percent of Earth's land surface and all these volcanic eruptions happening. You have, you know, new continents being created, oceans opening up and closing and totally disappearing. And yeah, when you when you think about it in terms of, OK, how many years is that? It ends up seeming like a long time because it yeah. is. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you have to, to put it in the perspective. I have a... um. There's a, a colleague at a university that I was at who's uh, more of an atmospheric scientist, and he was in a meeting with us. We were talking about a paper, and he told us that uh, something was happening, you know, crazy slowly in the atmosphere, that it it was this process that happened so slow. And we were like, whoa, so what kind of time scales are you talking? And he's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm an atmospheric scientist, so it's really like, you know, half a day is <laughs> oh, really wow. slow. And we were like, okay, yeah, we were thinking... Slow for a geologist yeah. is very different <laughs> to most people. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, the this, this, uh, scales, you know, of time and space and distance, you know, the, the astro, astrophysicists that are like, oh, galaxy wide. And then, and then, you know, there's these wonderful YouTube videos that kind of go through some of those, those sense of scale things, mm -hmm. especially with the universe. And, and you're like, wow. Um, and yeah, just kind of trying to, it, it is a little, like it's almost impossible at some level to kind of wrap your your head around it, and uh, I, maybe some people can manage it, but it's kind of like at a certain point it's just like it's big, <laughs> you yeah. know, and it's it's like bigger than big, <laughs> uh, all those places and things going on out there, and and the deep time, you know, and and that the Earth is relatively young, so to speak, in the in mm -hmm. the greater uh, universal sort of thing, and the ways that we're trying to. Uh, piece all of that together from the the strands of evidence that are that are available to us and kind of yeah. create these coherent stories out of the you, you know that's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is is the you, you know there's the facts that we can kind of put together but there's the framework within which we understand those facts you know mm -hmm. and so so like with your dating thing well the fact might be th there's this much beryllium but you have this framework that helps you understand that and put that in context and create a greater sort of narrative meaning about what that fact is telling you yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that, that feels like it's kind of a reciprocal sort of thing. It's like the, the, the framework that you have informs the things that you look at and how you understand those facts and vice versa. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in geology, it's despite studying really uh, old things on Earth, uh, geology is actually a relatively young science. And so even in, you know, plate tectonics as a theory really didn't come about until the 1960s. Mm. Uh, and people were doing geology before that. And so that obviously was a huge paradigm shift in how we think about the Earth. And we've gone through things like that within uh, glacial geology and climate science as well. You know, this uh, using exposure dating, for example, pretty much revolutionized how we study glaciers. Uh, we haven't been able to hadn't been able to really look at the retreat of glaciers in as much detail as we could. And this technique uh, uh, really started to come about in the 1990s. So uh, certainly within the age of the earth, this is a very, very, very yeah. new technique. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, it is interesting. I suppose it's there's there's probably a, a, a period of time where it's like, well, this is new and not everybody's quite sure about whether it's valid or not. And mm -hmm. then it, it gains acceptance. And, and it sounds like, you know, by the time you started working on it, it's probably 
fairly well accepted. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the, uh, yeah, sort of maybe, uh, I wouldn't want to say it's not cutting edge or anything, but it, it's pretty widely used within the community and uh, people, you know, it works. Yeah, uh, and it's yeah. it's accepted that it's yeah. it's a technique that works. I suppose that's another one of those things. It's like within a community, and and another one of those sort of scale related things. It's like within <laughs> our community, we all ex- you know understand, and and that's where lingo comes in. I guess we, we mm-hmm. develop our lingos and stuff. It was so so. Uh, you you have been here with a team of other folks over the last, I guess, only really two days. It's been a very full two days. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I've been uh, I've appreciated being able to get out and tag along, as I, I like to describe it as as the dirty work that happens uh, <laughs> quite literally. Um, and and seeing y'all get uh, get uh, dirtied up by the the ash around here, especially. But uh, looking at, I, I guess this this trip was largely around kind of looking at volcanic stuff and and some sediment stuff as as Mm -hmm. well um and so it was it was uh yeah interesting to and i'd be interested to get your perspective on this because it was you and then um it's a stratigrapher that focuses on uh volcanic stuff yeah britta jensen okay at uh, university of alberta and Mm -hmm. um a volcanologist um yeah Joe. Yep, <laughs> so Joe Lacharty. Yeah, yep, I remember so first names, but uh, yeah, yeah. And then, and then Jason Briner, your <laughs> advisor. Another um, uh, Jim Bachtel came up, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Tongass geologist, and then another former student of of uh, Jason's. Yeah, yeah. So we had a pretty. Uh, that's uh, Avery, Avril Schweinsberg was up with okay. us too. And, so. then, and then current student uh, in in Caleb, who, who mm-hmm. I met a couple years ago when they when they came to Sitka. And uh, yeah, it was really great to get out with you all and and just see what was going on out there. But I'd be curious to um, to get your impressions of sort of like your part in this and and your impressions of just seeing other people who have specialties other than your own and kind of the way that that conversation all kind of comes together. Sure. Yeah. So we were have mostly been working around uh, in the areas around Mount Edgecombe, uh, so the Mount Edgecombe volcanic field. And uh, so we spent some time over on Cruzoff Island, around Fred's Creek, and around the southern portion of the island. We went over to Bjorka Island as well. So lots of nice, like, hour-long boat rides, uh, seeing all the whales, and that was pretty amazing. Um, But yeah, so we were out here trying to see what we can do to reconstruct some of the history of the volcanic eruptions around here. Uh, My part in this project has really been... Doing or collecting samples to try to do uh, some dating of the rocks. So, uh, using these cosmogenic isotopes, so the exposure dating. And uh, we can use those same principles that we use for uh, surfaces that were eroded by a glacier or rocks that were dropped by a glacier for to date the exposure of the surfaces of lavas that eventually cooled into a rock. And so, uh, we've been collecting some samples uh, from some of the uh, basaltic lava flows from around the volcanic field and we're going to see what we can learn from them from how long they've been exposed and also uh, from by measuring other isotopes within the rocks to see when that lava was actually erupted Uh, so for me i i know how to do or i'm uh, well versed in i guess the the chemistry of of the rocks and using that to uh, figure out how long they've been exposed. But uh, my colleague at the University of New Hampshire, Joe Lichardi, he uh, is not only a glacial geologist, but he's also a volcanologist as well. So he's an expert in uh, 
volcanic rocks and looking at sort of how the surfaces of those rocks look, figuring out the conditions under which they erupted. Um, so it's been really awesome to have him out here uh, just helping sort of confirm our inferences of, oh, did this lava erupt and cool in the air or did it erupt into the ocean? And what can we learn about the the volcanism just from, uh, yeah, from how they look and, and the chemistry of those rocks? Uh, Britta Jensen, who's uh, the expert on the ash, has been also amazing to have out here. She has just got such a wealth of knowledge about uh, the all the different kinds of ash, which I'm probably going to put my foot in my mouth because I don't really know much about it myself. But how it's dispersed and the chemistry of it and what that means for you know the sequence of volcanism, it's been really amazing. And I feel like I've learned a lot already in this trip that we've been doing it's it's sort of a uh, exploratory trip to see uh, what we can find and hopefully we can uh, get some funding to come back out here for a more extended more extended time and do more research yeah yeah it was it was uh i don't think i've ever seen anybody quite as enthusiastic about scraping away layers of <laughs> scraping away the surface uh you know in a cut to get to the to the clean layers and and then just like really being into all the different different bits and, and pieces there yeah i know it seems like her her happy place is sitting up yeah. uh up in a bunch of uh, volcanic ash just face pressed to the to the ash trying to see what it is <laughs> yeah it, it was really fun and we had a, the chance uh, folks in sitka uh, may remember uh if if you were around uh, for that long the the tree that was um charcoal essentially that was buried in in uh, an ash deposit um, over on Kruzov that was found by Blake LaPerriere a few years ago. And we revisited that site as, um, on this, this week as, as part of that, and Jim Bechtel took everybody around and, and wasn't sure. had heard that it had washed away, but it turned out that there was actually still part of that tree embedded in, in the base, so like the base of it. There was another smaller tree right adjacent to it, and you could see some places where the, the branches were still in the, mm-hmm. in the wall of... of ash and stuff and that was i think if i remember correctly that was like 13,100 years old or something that tree yep yeah if know. i recall 13,165 yeah. years old yeah. um yeah that was so cool to see that i've seen i had seen photos of it before and um i had gotten heard about the data from it uh, from jim but it was so cool to be able to see that and you actually on some of the stumps when you pulled it up you could still see the rings yeah. of the yeah. tree which was absolutely crazy to think about that this this tree was getting buried in this you know cloud of of hot ash and rock and gas just screaming down the side of uh, mount edgecombe and the trees somehow you know burnt to a crisp but still standing there yeah yeah it made me wonder if like presumably it was alive when it when the the stuff surrounded it and then and then i guess like my my understanding or guess i guess is probably understanding it's maybe a bit strong but uh, <laughs> my guess is that it it basically cooked in place and that but i wondered how long that would take you know like how long does it take to char something when there's no oxygen available to it presumably that's an anoxic environment at that point and yeah. so i was curious like how how long did that stay hot and and they were you know in in sort of more modern situations i guess it's the valley of 10,000 smokes they call it over on the on in western alaska alaska peninsula that erupted and was smoking still steaming for like 20 years or something mm. where the ash had fallen and so i guess 
you know, there's there's more contemporary uh, accounts where you can observe things directly and see that, yeah, stuff can stay hot for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that was uh, sort of amazing to me, I didn't I didn't really thought about it before. That's right at sea, you know, right at the storm, just 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 above the storm surge kind of level right now um, at current sea level. But then I asked, I asked, well, so where was this and where was the ocean at the time? And And they're like, oh, it was like. I don't know, was it 80 meters below current or something? Yeah. It was something ridiculous. And I was like, oh, so the sea was way out there. This was like up mid-slope or something Mm -hmm. on this this mountain. And so presumably there was a whole forest there. And, you know, if you were to bring out your excavator and dig through that stuff, you'd find more trees. But, uh, yeah, it was just kind of wild. Again, I mean, 13,000 years ago, not that long ago in the history of the Earth standards, long, long time ago in terms of human standards. But, uh but wild to just kind of think about what that means and, and sort of reconstructing in your mind what that might have looked like at the time. Yeah, probably uh, would have been pretty bad time if you were right. out there. Yeah. <laughs> out there. yeah. Good time to be somewhere else. Yeah, uh, for sure. In that moment. And um, yeah, so what were some of the highlights for you of that, that you were able to observe here that sort of, I, I guess, that were particularly intriguing? I mean, we don't have to limit it to just geology. Uh, <laughs> you know, there were some other things that, that we're seeing, I'm sure. But uh, <laughs> uh, what were some of the highlights for you? Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty cool. We had to, uh, it wasn't a super long walk up that creek, but it was definitely a little bit sketchy going all all over those piles of logs, oh, right. too. right, the drift log piles oh, were sketchy, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Slippery, and some of them are Moving loose. around, yeah. and yeah, that was a little bit of a... Uh, touchy situation yeah. to get up there but that was really cool to be able to be able to see that um even just seeing uh mount edgecombe i mean i so i grew up in florida and i went to grad school in buffalo new york and now i'm in new hampshire and so i've really not seen very many volcanoes in my life uh and to just have one here that you can see from town on a clear day which most of them have been since i've been here which has been great uh but being able to just, you know, look out the window and see this beautiful uh, volcano has been really, really cool. Um, and just, uh, I don't know, obviously, I think all the rocks are really exciting. We've seen some really interesting formations in some of these lavas around Kruzoff Island and on Lazaria Island that uh, form because of, of how the lava cools. It makes these really crazy uh hexagonal shapes that in this case are sort of bent over and uh, very interesting to think about how those might have formed and what they mean about when the lava erupted. Um, so that's been really awesome to see. It's it's really been a, a crash course for me in volcanic rocks because that's not something I've looked at a lot before. Um, and on the non-geology side of things, yesterday we did get to see some orcas off the south side of Kruzoff Island, which I've never seen in the wild before. And they were really putting on a show for us. Uh, yeah. 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 They were they were hopping out of the water. Well, hopping. It's probably not quite the right verb. But uh, <laughs> they were coming out of the water in any case and tail tail smacking. And it was like uh, we, we'd gone out there to look at this particular geologic formation, which was also really cool. But but it was sort of uh, state upstaged by the uh, <laughs> by the by the orcas there for a minute. Uh, which is which is kind of funny, and the horned puffins, I guess, were out there too. Yeah. Oh, you got some really nice photos of those puffins. It was, it was fun to see those. Um, but yeah, the the I had never been to that point. I was out all the way out to basically Cape Edgecombe, um, and this kind of 
amphitheater like little cove out there with like the bizarre layers the 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 layers of i guess that's all still basalt but but just yeah there's maybe some other kind of volcanic rock i didn't totally catch what people were shouting back at each (laughs) forth from each other on the boat um but yeah very cool there's all these sea caves uh that are really tall Mm -hmm. um so yeah it's it really spectacular landscape yeah it, it feels a little i mean just as a as a sort of uh somebody that has a lot of local experience but not a lot of expertise in any geology certainly uh, a little bit like drinking from the fire hose uh, <laughs> um, i feel like that too and i have yeah. a phd in geology so <laughs> just like which is fun but you know it's it's then good to be able to kind of sit back and, and digest it a little bit and mm-hmm. you know i suppose as y'all are going off into your to your field seasons for for other things there'll be opportunities to to do a little bit of that and mm-hmm. And then come back and have have conversations and, and say, okay, that thing that we saw there, you know, what does it actually mean? And and these ideas that because it sounded like, I mean, I think you had a chance to visit Fred's Creek area and, mm-hmm. and saw some stuff there that you know, as I recall, Jim Bachel saying, uh, we came back with more questions than we left with. Yeah, we we got out there and uh, seeing some things that we maybe uh, didn't quite expect to see, but uh, yeah, we definitely came away with more questions than we started with. Uh, yeah. And one thing, too, I want to uh, just say that so this is my first time in Sitka, and I have just been so overwhelmed by how awesome everyone here is. There are all so many people have been interested in what we're doing. We've had great conversations with, you know, our boat captains who have been taking us uh, out to cruise off and Bjorka, some of the people in town who came to this geology walk that we did this morning, although I guess this will be airing tomorrow. tomorrow yeah. But So yesterday morning, I suppose. Um, yeah, it's been so great to be able to talk to the people here in town uh you guys are awesome <laughs> yeah there's there's uh definitely a, a healthy contingent of folks that are that are interested and even more that that have mentioned to me oh yeah that sounds really cool i wish i could go or, or mm-hmm. you know there's very much an interest in the ge- i mean the, especially the recent geologic history but even deeper geologic history the challenge sometimes is to get it communicated in a way that makes sense to to some of us who <laughs> don't necessarily have all the the background to understand um and that's one of the things i really appreciate about talking with you all is like i i had the feeling that everybody was like certainly willing to explain things in ways that were <clears throat> less efficient and you know i understand the value of lingo for just efficient dense <laughs> communication but but to take a little more time and, and kind of describe for me like uh, brita was describing she kept using the word lapilli and i was like what does that mean uh, so, yeah. <clears throat> she gave me this description of okay it's it, it basically has to do with the size class of the particles in in a, in a layer and mm-hmm. ash and pumice and lapilli or something like that and so that was helpful and i that's one of the things that i it seems like all of you that were here anyway, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> seems like all of you that were here are very interested in and willing to sort of take that time and, and explain things to people in a way that, um, especially when we're out in the field, you can just, and it certainly makes it easier to then just point, this is what we're talking about here. Right, so. yeah. <laughs> and those, so I learned a new term, one of the new terms for me this time was inflated basalts. Ah, yes. Yeah, <laughs> which if you're on the south coast of Cruzoff, I think there's some by Fred's Creek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely yeah, by Fred's definitely Creek. Yeah, definitely by Fred's Creek. And where these things, they almost like uh, the bread bread rose too fast while it was cooking and, and you know, the, cru- the top of the crust sort of exploded a little bit out and you have these tipped formations with the cracks. But basically, as I'm understanding it, 
and and I want to ask you to confirm because I know this isn't your expertise, but uh, you, you can confirm that this was your understanding too. I guess but, uh, <laughs> that that is that is formed and cooled. That underneath the, the 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 lava was essentially still pushing up, so it was kind of tending to inflate these the surface formations that um, were then would crack because they'd cooled and hardened already. Yeah, that's exactly my understanding as yeah. well. But yeah, it's sort of yeah, lava is uh, getting supplied to the base, and so it's sort of uh, getting you know changing in height, in, inflating. That's why we call them inflated lavas, and sort of cracking like bread or like a cake or something that's risen too quickly. And you can you can even see the in some cases, the layers of those lava as they built up from the bottom. So it's sort of this uh, very thin layer cake kind of formation, but it's, you know, rocks. Yeah, yeah, with the little bubbles in the layers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was kind of, it was, when folks might have been out on a lake in the winter, you know, and you'll see these layers of bubbles as the the ice freezes down. And and as I was out there discussing it, it's like, oh, so that's kind of, I mean, it would have probably happened slower with the lava, but, but essentially as the, as the lava cooled and hardened, the bubbles reached the, the surface, the, the lower surface of that hardened stuff. And then, then there's kind of a layer that forms there. And, mm-hmm. and for folks that know, there's things that you can then conclude about the formation and how it happened and the process and so forth. Uh, I'm not one of those folks. So, <laughs> um, but it was interesting to at least start to kind of have that door cracked open a little bit to, to understanding what that means to people who, who study that and are able to interpret that. Yeah, uh, so. yeah, definitely. And it's, it's always really fun being out in the field, too, because even the people who are experts on some particular thing, there's always something a little bit different about every spot. So... I feel like at least once everyone's kind of standing around going, oh, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. I got the impression that happened several times. <laughs> there over was, the course of the I know, maybe yeah. I'm being too generous, yeah. <laughs> but there was definitely, like we said, more questions yeah. uh, than we started with. That's for sure. Which is, you mean, I, I, and based on what I observed and sort of my own experience, that's part of what makes it intriguing. And it's like, yeah, I mean, there's questions here that are really interesting and, and we want to try and, and, and to be clear for folks, you know, there's a Mount Instagram pamphlet that's that's kind of got a nice summary mm-hmm. of, of the work that's been done. There's been a fair amount of work done, but with the techniques that have been pioneered, as I understand, in the last decade since that was that work was done, like there's a lot more that could be said and refined about our understanding of that volcanic yeah. field. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a lot of the work on the volcanic history um, up until very recently was you know, 80s and 90s. So we've had a lot of advances in techniques so we can ask different questions and learn a lot more um, than uh, they could at the time. Yeah. Well, I will look forward, uh, cross my fingers that, that y'all figure out a way to keep coming back. and, and Oh, uh, we'll be back. <laughs> yeah. And doing this is a lot of fun to get out. And as we wrap up here, anything else you'd like to mention? Not that comes to mind. Just a big thank you to you and everybody in town. This has been a whirlwind, but uh, a really amazing experience. And we will hopefully be back at least next summer. Maybe yeah. More. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope the rest of your field season goes off, goes well. I know you're you're headed out of here and into was it like Wyoming or something? Or? Yep, Grand Teton National right. Park. Yep, I'm working elsewhere. So hope that goes well. And yeah, thanks for talking to me. Yeah. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded and originally aired back in July of 2021. I was speaking with Aliyah Lesnick, who is currently an assistant professor and lab director of the Glaciers and Climate Lab at Queens College in New York City. I want to thank her for taking some time to visit with me during her brief trip here in Sitka that summer. I want to thank you also for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. 
As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.